Luke chapter 10, verses 38 to 42. As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered, you are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed, or indeed only one. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God endures forever. Uh, well, last Sunday after uh, church was over, um, Jean's wife, Jeannie, began to get contractions, and they got stronger and more and more intense. And uh, on Monday morning, uh, they gave birth to their third son, uh, Nathaniel uh, Silas Jew. And uh, mom and baby are both healthy. They're not here today. But can we also give Jean and Jeannie a warm applause, too? Uh, I was joking around, but I was, uh, I was telling them that uh, uh, we know uh, Nathaniel's a good pastor's kid because he came after Sunday service was over and not before Sunday service started. So we're super excited for them. And um, if we can keep them in our thoughts, whether it's the meal train and and in our prayers, I, I know that they would def, uh, desperately and definitely appreciate it. So we praise God for that. Okay. Now, two years ago, there was a study done by Microsoft. And in this study, they discovered two things. Number one, the first thing that they discovered is that the attention span of a goldfish is nine seconds. The second thing that they discovered is that the attention span of people is eight seconds. And so what they discovered is that we now have an attention span shorter than that of goldfish. It is very difficult for us to concentrate on one particular thing. Now, how did we ever get to a point like this? Well, the social scientist Herbert Simon once said 50 years ago correctly that a wealth of information leads to a poverty of attention. And you can make a very, very strong argument that today, as far as information goes, we are richer in information than ever before, but as a result of that, our attention span is poorer than ever before. So how then do we live a really present life, a fully present life, a mindful life in a very distracting world? Well, in his TEDx talk, uh, Don Dapani says that when he was a child, he was often made fun of because he was so easily distracted, and so people would always make fun of him. But after he graduated from high school and university, he enrolled as a monk in a monastery. And it was there he learned the two reasons why he had such a hard time focusing. The first reason why he discovered he couldn't concentrate well was because of this. He was never formally taught how to concentrate. He never really learned how to concentrate. If I were to ask our room, everyone in our room, rhetorically, how many of us have actually heard lectures and been taught how to concentrate? I would bet that it's smaller than a handful of us. And so he says, I just was never taught how to concentrate. But here's the second thing. The reason why he didn't learn how to concentrate well was because he was never taught it, and because he was never taught it, he never learned to practice it. And unless you practice something, you can't really become good at something. So he was never taught it, therefore he never practiced it, therefore he never became good at it. And instead, what he was informally taught how to do was be distracted. 
So studies show that 50 to 100 times a day, we check our smartphones. Now, to be clear, technology is not a bad thing in and of itself. It's a great thing, actually, but it really depends on whether we're in control of it or it's in control of us. And so the fact that we check our phones 50 to 100 times a day clearly means that we're not in control of our gadgets, they're in control of us. And so we are informally taught how to uh, be distracted and we practice being distracted and therefore now we are experts at distraction. And so um, imagine with me for a moment that your attention span is like a glowing ball of light. Now, if it's true that our attention span is now eight seconds, what that means is that this glowing ball of light is moving around from here to here to here every eight seconds. It's moving around. And what that means is if our attention span is going all over the place, it never has the opportunity to descend and deepen into a particular thing. And because of that, what we're left with is sort of surface-level, superficial type of thinking. And so this basic question again, how do we be fully present? How do we become more mindful uh, in a distracting world? The series that we're, we've been doing the past few weeks is called The Upside-Down Life. And the reason why we're calling it this series is because there's a kind of living that leads to dying, and there's a kind of dying that leads to living. The kind of living that leads to dying is a type of life that is full of distractions and clutter, leaving us very scatterbrained. And the more scatterbrained we are, the more difficult it is for us to listen to our emotions, to process our feelings, and therefore think of solutions on how to fix that. And I think this is where counseling is so, so important, because a good counselor helps us to listen to our own feelings. A good counselor helps us to process our emotions. A good counselor helps us to find solutions. And so how then do we learn how to be more mindful and present in a very distracting world? Because if we fail to think deeply, we will fail to live deeply. And that was certainly the case for one of the characters in this story named Martha. This is a story of two sisters, Mary and Martha. And we think that Martha was the older one. And Martha sees Jesus and the 12 disciples, and she invites them impromptu to her home. So this wasn't something that was scheduled on her GCAL or anything like that. This was a spontaneous meal. And so her distinguished guests, guests 13 in all, Jesus and the 12 disciples plus her sister, come to her home, and now she has a responsibility of playing hostess and entertaining them. And like a good older sibling, they're responsible, they're mature, they want to help everyone, take care of everyone, make sure everyone is having a good time. And so Martha rushes to the kitchen, and she's thinking to herself, I should have swept her before they came. What ingredients do I have? What should I bake? Should I just order? What should I do? And she feels this sort of overwhelming responsibility to take care of her distinguished guests. And then all of a sudden, she hears her younger sister cracking up in the living room, having a good time with Jesus and the 12 other disciples. And immediately, thoughts begin to invade and creep into her head. Why is my younger sister Mary always having fun while I always do all the work? Why is she so irresponsible? Why I always have to be the responsible one? Why, do, why does she just play while I am slaving myself in this kitchen? And after these thoughts invade her mind and as she battles it back and forth, 
She can't contain it anymore. And so she bursts into the living room, and we read in verse 40, but Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. The word that is used here for distraction means to be dragged away or to be pulled away. And here, Martha is being dragged away into the kitchen. She is being pulled away into the kitchen with all of the responsibilities that she has to do. And similarly, like Martha, we are often distracted and we are dragged away and pulled away, not to doing bad things, but we usually distract ourselves with good things to the neglect of the better things that we ought to be doing. Now, why do we keep doing this to ourselves? Well, if you take a look at the first page of your bulletin, I want to read for you an article, an excerpt from an article called Look, a Distraction by Tim Challies. And this is what Challies says. Distraction is one of the costs of life in a digital world. Paul Graham says, distraction is not a static obstacle that you avoid, like you might avoid a rock in the road. Distraction seeks you out. We surround ourselves with devices that bring us so many good gifts, but even these good gifts exact a cost, the cost of distraction. The iPad that allows me to read the Bible anytime and anywhere also barges in with notifications and alerts. The phone that allows me to stay in touch with my family while they are far away also wakes me at night and with its buzzes and flashes, it giveth with one hand and taketh away with the other. Past few weeks, I've been reading um, a book on prayer by a 19th century theologian named George Mueller. And uh, in, th in this book called um, Soul Nourishment First, Mueller talks about his own prayer life. And Mueller talks about how every morning, the first thing that he does is to pray. And when he feels like his heart is pretty empty and barren, he'll read the Bible. And he'll read a couple chapters, and then he'll go back to prayer. And there's one part in the book where he talks about what his prayer looks like. And he says, sometimes I'll be on my knees for 15 minutes, 30 minutes, and up to an hour without having prayed because my mind is wandering. And he said, it's only after those 15 minutes are over, 30 minutes are over, that hour is over, and I begin to be conscious of myself that only then do I really begin to pray. Now, I think all of us can relate to what Mueller is saying as far as our minds going adrift or afar. Now, why is that the case? The reason for that is because the mind is an awesome time traveler. Our bodies cannot travel through time, but the mind can easily teleport to the future and to the past. So the mind can go rewind back to the past. And th you can think about what you did this morning, yesterday, last week, a year ago, 10 years ago. And sometimes dwelling on the past could be a good thing because you're reflecting but it can also be a bad thing if you dwell on the past because it can lead to regret and bitterness. But the mind can also go to the future. You can think about what's happening tomorrow at work on Monday, next week, six months from now, a year from now, 10 years from now, that can be a good thing because you can plan accordingly. And yet that could be a bad thing too because if you think too much about the future, you begin to worry, have anxiety and stress and you fret about what tomorrow holds. The mind is an excellent time traveler. And so one of the things that we have to learn how to do with our minds is for our minds to sink deeply into the present moment so that we are fully present 
when we're doing a particular thing and so we can concentrate on that thing. Because if we learn how to think deeply, we can live deeply. But if we fail to think deeply, we're going to live superficial and shallow lives. And so here's the question, how do we go about doing that? And why are we so good at distracting ourselves if we all know that concentrating is so important? So let me read for us a second quote on the first page of your bulletin by the philosophy professor at Boston College, Peter Kreft. And this is what Kreft says in regards to why we are so good at distracting ourselves. And Kreft says, we ought to have much more time, more leisure than our ancestors did because technology, which is the most obvious and radical difference between their lives and ours, is essentially a series of time-saving devices. In ancient societies, if you were rich, you had slaves to do the menial work so that you could be freed to enjoy your leisure time. Life was like a vacation for the rich because the poor slaves were their machines. But now that everyone has slave substitutes, that's machines, why doesn't everyone enjoy the leisurely vacation lifestyle of the ancient rich? Why have we killed time instead of saving it? Because we want to complexify our lives. We don't have to, we want to. We think we want freedom and leisure, but deep down we know that this would be unendurable to us, like a dark and empty room without distractions, where we would be forced to confront ourselves. If you are typically modern, your life is like a mansion with a terrifying hole right in the middle of the living room floor. So you paper over the hole with a very busy wallpaper pattern to distract yourself. How can you hide a rhinoceros? Easy, cover it with a million mice, multiple diversions. So according to Kreft, what he says is the reason for why we distract ourselves is because there's a gaping hole in our hearts. And because we don't know how to fill this gaping hole in our hearts, we willingly distract ourselves so we don't have to think about that inner need, that angst that we all have. And here we see that Martha is distracting herself with all the things that she needs to do. She's being a busy body. But this gaping hole in our heart keeps getting bigger and bigger, and the pressure that she feels from this hollow hole in her soul keeps getting bigger. This is the reason why she bursts into the living room and, and says, tell, says to Jesus, tell my sister to help. Now, what is that gaping hole that she feels? The gaping hole that Martha feels is a desire for recognition, for acknowledgement, for approval. And so I find it interesting that if, if you take a look at verse uh, uh, 40 again, she doesn't go to her sister and she doesn't say, sis, I need help in the kitchen. What does she do? She talks directly to Jesus and she says, Lord, don't you know that my sister ditched me? Tell her to come and help me. Why am I the only one working and slaving away in the kitchen? Why doesn't Martha talk to Mary? Why does she talk to Jesus? It's because she's looking for recognition, approval, and applause from him. Now, there is nothing wrong with looking for recognition and approval from Jesus, but the way that she was doing it, the way that she was searching for that approval and acknowledgement was based upon her performance. And because her performance in the kitchen was not going so well, clearly, otherwise she wouldn't be so flustered, because her works, her performance was not going well, her identity begins to shrivel and it's now shaken. And so in her head, she thinks, if I put my sister down, I can raise myself up. 
Now, this is one of the dangers, I think, when we think that our doing determines our being. You see, Mar Martha is not just an ancient figure, but she's a modern person like us. Because instinctively, all of us feel like if we do something, then we are something. If I perform well, then I'm a somebody and not a nobody. Our doing determines our being. But here is where building identity upon our performance is so, so dangerous. If you look at the final quote on the first page of your bulletin, I want to read you uh, an excerpt from Andre Agassi's biography, Open. And after winning the Wimbledon, this is what Agassi says. I've been let in on a dirty little secret. Winning changes nothing. Now that I've won a slam, I know something that very few people on earth are permitted to know. A win doesn't feel as good as a loss feels bad. And the good feeling doesn't last as long as the bad, not even close. It took me 22 years to discover my talent, to win my first slam, and only two years to lose it. And what Agassiz is saying is that if you build an understanding of who you are, your identity upon your performance, that is a very shakable way of doing it. And I thought Tim really eloquently shared about how he was doing that in the past when he was at West Point. And similarly with Andre Agassiz and each and every one of us, there may be seasons in life where you are killing it, but I promise you there will be seasons in life where you do not succeed, but you fall flat on your face and you eat a buffet of humble pie. Who will you be then if your identity is constructed on your performance? In Christianity, we see a paradigm and cultural shift in how to understand our identity because in Christianity, our identity is not something that we achieve but our identity is something that we receive. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, if you take a look with me at verse 41 to 42, this is what Jesus says to Martha. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered, you are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed or indeed only one. Mary has chosen what is better and it will not be taken away from her. Here Jesus says, few things are needed, indeed only one. Now what is the one thing that is needed? Well, we get a clue of that one thing that is needed by the clause that is after this, where Jesus says, Mary has chosen what is better. Now what did Mary choose that Martha did not? And here what Jesus is saying to Martha is this, Martha, I don't need your performance what I need is your presence. I don't need your resume. I want a relationship. I don't care what you do for me. I care that you're with me. What he wanted was for her to be present in the living room, just like Mary was present. Now, why, why is this the one thing that Jesus wants, when in every other religion, that God wants your performance? your good works? Why is it that in Christianity, the one thing that he wants is not your record, your resume, but you? Why is that the case? And the reason for that is because who we fundamentally are at the core of our being is a child of God. You are a child of God. You are not first and foremost a Wimbledon winner, 
a student at this school, an accountant, a lawyer, a doctor, who you fundamentally are first and foremost is a child of God. And what that means then is that God wants to have a meaningful and real relationship with you. The only problem with that is that this relationship is broken and it needs to be repaired. And that's why Jesus came. You see, Martha was busy serving Jesus. What she failed to understand is that the reason why the primary reason why Jesus came was actually to serve her. He didn't come so that Martha could serve him. He came so that he could serve her, but she didn't understand that. In Mark 10, 35, uh, he came, for the Son of Man came uh, to serve, not to be served, and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's the reason why Jesus came because that relationship is broken and needs to be repaired. Let me give you an example of how this works. A few years ago, Rick Warren was giving a sermon at a very large prison, and he was speaking uh, outside in the courtyard in front of 5,000 men. Uh, unfortunately, there was no stage. There was only a mic, but the mic was loud enough so all 5,000 people could hear. And so as he's preaching, only the first few hundred people are actually paying attention because the rest of the thousands are too distracted. And so Rick Warren has an idea as he's preaching. And so he takes a $50 bill out of his pocket and he says, who wants this $50 bill? And all of a sudden you see all the inmates' ears go up and 5,000 hands shoot up. And then he takes the $50 bill and crumples it and he says, now who wants the $50 bill? And he sees all 5,000 hands go up. He throws the $50 bill onto the ground, steps on it, spits at it, kicks dirt on the $50 bill, picks it up, and he says, now who wants the $50 bill? And you see all 5,000 hands go up. And Warren says, you know, for many of you, this is how you have been treated all your life. You have been stepped on, you have been spit at, you have had dirt kicked on you, you have been marginalized and ostracized by, by society, and you have been rejected. But what I want you to know is that in God's eyes, you have not lost one cent of your value. Now, why is it that Rick Warren can tell 5,000 convicts, the most reprehensible of our society, that they have not lost one cent of their value? And the reason why they have not lost one cent of their value is because someone paid a price for the cost of the crimes they had committed. And similarly with each and every one of us, I want you to know that no matter what you have done, and there isn't a single person in this room that doesn't have regrets about the past, that no matter what you have done, and no matter what you will do in the future, because you will fall flat on your face and you will hurt people, but that no matter what you have done in the past, the present, and the future, you have to know that you have not lost one cent of your value in God's eyes. How do I know it? Look at the cross. What else was that for? The price that he paid was so great, and the reason why it was so great is because our sins are so great. But at the same time, our sins are completely forgiven because he took the punishment that we deserved in our place. Now, is that the kind of person that you have a surface level, superficial relationship with? I don't think so. That's the kind of person 
you're supposed to have a meaningful relationship with. You know, in the, during the Protestant Reformation, one of the hottest theological debates during the 17th century was how is God present in the Lord's Supper? And so for those of you who are just becoming members, you might, be, you might remember some of the different views on the Lord's Supper, but there is a, the Roman Catholic transubstantiation view, the Lutheran consubstantiation view, the Zwinglian view, the, the Reform view. There are a lot of different views on the Lord's presence as to how is God present in those elements. Now, I would say that today, we don't really have those kind of theological debates or arguments. And the reason why, the reason for that is because now the conversation is really flipped. The bigger question today is not how is God present, but the bigger question today is are we present with God or are we absent? If you look at the Bible, there are three uh, locales, and I'm not going to go deeply into this, but there's a garden of Eden, the tabernacle, and the temple. And in each of these three locales, God was fully present. Why is it that we are not all rushing into Jerusalem right now trying to construct a temple? Why don't we do that? It's because now we are the temple, and God dwells within you. The tragic thing about this is that as modern people, we can't even fathom the possibility or grasp the concept that God could truly be present in our lives, which is why I think the bigger debate today isn't so much whether God is real and present so much as are we really present with Him or are we absent? So what are some practical ways then that we can really be present with God, mindful of Him, instead of our minds wandering? How can we be present? How can we be mindful, as mindful as feeling the chair that you're sitting on? How can we be present, so present, so present that we can hear the humming of the air conditioning? How can we be that present? So just a few things. Well, the first thing is this. Pay attention to your attention without going on autopilot so that your mind doesn't drift away. Pay attention to your attention. Specifically, pay attention to prayer. Now, prayer is one of those things where our mind wanders a lot. And so one of the things I try to do is I, I personally try to pray out loud. Because if I pray silently, my mind drifts all over the place. But when I pray out loud, it forces me to pray coherently and to be more and more focused. The other thing I would say when it comes to prayer is not only pray out loud if you can, but don't say empty and hollow words. So for example, don't say, dear God. We never see that template in scripture. You're not writing him a letter. You know that, right? You're having a conversation with him. And oftentimes when people start prayers with dear God, they automatically go into autopilot. This is also another uh, pattern I've seen is the Father God people Father God, thank you for this day. Father God, please be with me, Father God, because I have a very important interview, Father God. And so you're saying this phrase over, it's empty, it's meaningless, it doesn't mean it. We would never talk to one another that way. So why do we talk to him that way? It's empty, it's hollow. This is another thing. When we pray, sometimes before we eat, we say, Father God, dear God, may this food nourish our bodies. Unless you're eating candy for dinner... <laughs> That food is going to nourish your body. You don't have to pray about that. What's a more appropriate prayer? God, will you nourish my soul because it is so malnourished, just like this food nourishes my body. Isn't that such a more meaningful, impactful prayer than may this food nourish my body? So pay attention to your attention, specifically when it comes to prayer. 
but not only when it comes to prayer, but also reading the Word. So one of the things that I do in the morning is I actually listen to, to the Bible, and that's, it's actually harder than reading. And so one of the things I force myself to do is this. If I can't give a thesis of what I just read, I hit the rewind button and I re-listen to that chapter over. The point of reading the Bible is not to cross off my checklist and say, done. The point is to be present and to be mindful of what I just read. And so I force myself to give a thesis of what I just read, or I go back. And sometimes, like this morning, when I'm reading First Chronicles, <gasps> I hit the rewind button more than once because my mind drifted as soon as it hit genealogies and names I can't even pronounce. So pay attention to your attention when it comes to prayer and reading the Word. And I would say, in general, pay attention to your, uh, to your attention when it comes to our service. We have about 10 minutes left. Eventually, we're going to collect offering. Pay attention to how much you're giving. Pay attention to your motivations. Am I giving enough? Should I be giving more? During the time of offering, we're going to be singing a song. Do I mean the words that I'm singing, or am I just singing it on autopilot? And if I don't mean what I'm singing because I don't think I can do it, is my heart's desire to have the prayer to have this thing? And so be mindful of the words that you're singing. Be mindful of the people that you're sitting next to because they are not just strangers. They're not just people. They're your brothers and sisters. They're family. And your posture towards them makes a difference. Be mindful. Be present. Why? Because God is present with us. So let me close with one story as we, uh, as we wrap up. One of my friends uh, was sharing this story about uh, a kid, um, and that kid was going to school, and that particular day at school was bring your parents to school day. And, um, and so on that day, all, uh, you know, all the kids are sort of bragging about their parents, and, you know, one boy says, uh, my dad, he's the founder of a Fortune 500. And one girl goes, oh, yeah, my mom, she's a doctor, and she helps these lives. And then another boy goes, oh, yeah, my dad's a firefighter, and he fights fire. And then another girl goes, oh, yeah, my mom drives the newest Tesla. How cool is that? And so this particular kid is thinking, oh, my gosh, what am I going to say? Because my dad is a single parent, and he just has an ordinary blue-collar job. There's nothing about him that's different from all of the other parents. There's nothing about him that sets him apart. And then all of a sudden, it dawned on him, there was actually one thing that set his dad apart from all of the other parents. And so he looked at his classmates and he said, oh yeah, you know my dad, my dad, he's right over here. You see, all of the other parents were too busy with their jobs and too distracted by the things that they had to do that they were not present. But for this boy's dad, he was here. Don't you know that God is here? Don't you know that God is within you? So what do you have to fear? And why are you so confused with who you really, really are when you are a child of God, a sinner that is saved by grace? He is here, but are you? He is present, but are you too busy and absent? So as we close our service, why don't we practice being mindful of what we're doing uh, practice the things that we're saying and giving, particularly when that alarm bell rings tomorrow morning on Monday. Let's pray together.
God, forgive us because sometimes we blame you for being absent in our lives. And when in fact the real indictment is on us, we are so oftentimes absent from you. And so help us to get rid of the clutter and the junk in our lives to make a space for you uh, each and every single day. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.